Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week I sit down with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history and Italian studies at NYU. During our conversation, we talk about her research on the rise of fascism in 1920s Italy, how and why authoritarian leaders can gain power, and her views on the 2016 U.S. presidential election. All right, Ruth. Well, first of all, uh, thank you for for taking the uh, the time to talk today, and welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thanks. I'm glad to be speaking with you. Same here. Um, well, I want to get into the uh, recent presidential election in the U.S. in a little bit, but w- would love to maybe learn a little bit about um, your personal background in terms of how uh, you got interested in studying history and specifically um, it seems like you, you focus some time on Italian history and the history of fascism generally. Um, how, how did you come to uh, be interested in those sorts of subjects? Did you always consider yourself to be an aspiring historian or was that something that you just sort of uh, perked up as you uh, began your academic career? So I grew up in California, hmm. in uh, Southern California, in a town, Pacific Palisades, mm-hmm that had been a refuge for a lot of um, people from Nazi Germany. Mm. A lot of important intellectuals and um, Arnold Schoenberg, Otto Klemperer. And so I grew up always thinking about this issue of what happens to culture and ideas uh, when there's a dictatorship and, and kind of thinking about these lives that got interrupted and they came to L.A. and they had various difficulties of adjustment. So I, I, I was always conscious of this. Um, my, my math teacher in high school was Arnold Schoenberg's son, so he used to talk about it with me. So then I went to UCLA, and I um, took a senior seminar, which was about emigres to mm-hmm. L.A., mm-hmm. and so I did a senior thesis and started using archives, and so I got the bug mm-hmm. of history. And I was going to focus uh, on... Nazi Germany, uh, and then somebody said to me, well, why don't you focus on Italy? Because it, there's hardly anything done, and it lasted twice as long. So you mm. had a whole generation that had to adjust to living under the dictatorship. So so that's how I got into it. Mm. Uh, and um, in fact, my first book was about culture and intellectuals and uh, under you know what, all but 20 years of Mussolini's regime. Mm. And when you were growing up and meeting the, some of the refugees and, and intellectuals, including your math teacher, what, what were some of the stories that resonated with you that they had experienced or things that you just remember them talking about that may have been informative for you as a young person? I think a lot of it was about difficulty in cultural translation so, or adjustment from imagine going from you know Weimar, Germany uh, to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm which was considered a cultural backwater in some ways. Mm-hmm. Beautiful with nature and the beach and Pacific Palisades is a very beautiful sandwich in between Malibu and Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. So it couldn't be more you know, gorgeous. So, for example, uh, my, my thesis was on Otto von Klemperer. I was very, you know, playing a lot of music then. 
And so I wanted to pick a musical figure. And he was a very famous conductor, and he was trying to introduce these kind of dissonant Schoenberg and modernist works at the Hollywood Bowl. Hmm. And they really didn't go over well. And so he was very crushed. And so, you know, a lot of these questions of how do you adapt to a different culture, how do you, you know, the sorrow and the sadness of not being able to go home. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I I kind of applied this in a way to my studies of fascism, and I ended up um, in this first book focusing a lot on these intellectuals who were kind of ambivalent. And so they tried to leave, some of them, but they couldn't adjust Mm. to living in other countries and so they decided to come back. Hmm. And so these kind of questions of what the choices you make, the price you pay, either way, mm-hmm. um, I was always very conscious mm-hmm. of them. And, and they're, very, they come, they're coming back right now in terms of, you know, what choices are we all going to make and are we making and how informed are we mm-hmm. about those things. And fascism, I guess, from from my perspective in in the U.S., the, the uh, sort of uh, archetypal case study is Germany. Um, but as you said, uh, you know, Italy was going through a, a similar uh, phase right around that time. Uh, for for people that are are not particularly informed about how fascism came to be in Italy, um, give us some color there. What what happened? How did uh, you know uh, the birthplace of one of the great republics turn into a, a fascist state in the early twentieth century? Yeah, uh, well, you know, fa- Italian fascism kind of gets um, because Nazism was so prominent and it was so immediately so harsh and it led to the Holocaust. Italian fascism doesn't really get its due in terms mm. of how important it was as a model. Mm. And it becomes known as kind of the lesser evil, which mm. is a, a phrase, and people didn't really know about how destructive it was. But it's really important to study because Mussolini came to power in 1922, mm. and Hitler didn't come for 11 years after that. So Hitler was watching um, all the things that Mussolini was doing, and, and Mussolini was the original fascist. Mm. So, you know, there are many, many moments along the way, starting with the fact that nobody knew what fascism was about. They didn't understand uh, what was in front of them because it was new. Mm. So Mussolini had been like a really radical socialist, like a revolutionary. Mm. And then he got kicked out of the Socialist Party because he uh, uh, favored World War I. Mm. So there were these right – and this is right after, you know, World War I, so you have all this kind of, um, you know – unrest and these veterans who couldn't really demobilize and they didn't know what to do with themselves. So Mussolini took part of the left wing, like the revolutionary stuff, and then he married it with imperialism and nationalism. And that's why Germany is national socialism, Mm -hmm. right? But he was the original one. So when you read back at the time, people were scratching their heads saying, is this left wing? Is this right wing? And their idea of right wing was a very old fashioned, like mm. a conservatism. So it's very interesting to go back and, and in a period where we're kind of thinking, well, what's going on? All of our certainties are gone. This was much magnified back after World War One, the beginning of something new. And was it the circumstances primarily that resulted after World War One that led to a figure and the positions that someone like a Mussolini was taking to gain popularity and win elections in a country like Italy, or was it more complicated than that? So you had a perfect storm of um, him being a disruptor and being able to count on all these kind of demobilized 
um, vets who became his militia, hmm. um, the squadrists. And then he was also uh, very appealing to conservatives and even some liberals who were a lot more conservative than our idea of liberal. Mm -hmm. But they thought they could use him. There are a lot of lessons. Um, so he comes up out of nowhere, and he actually was invited into the government, as was Hitler. Mm. And so he did not just seize power out of nothing. He was invited to be part of a coalition government. Mm. And everyone thought he would, quote, pivot. Um, they thought that he would, as soon as he got inside a parliamentary um, framework, he would behave. And then, of course, he used that as a base to misbehave more and more, and the violence increased. And so a lot of conservative people thought they could use him to stop um, the left. They were very, they were, their hatred of the left was more than their concern about democracy. Hmm. And that's a, something that resonates today. And, and then once he had a real base of power, he staged this kind of march on Rome and he went to the king and the king was actually the commander in chief and the king could have turned the army on him. And this is in 1922 and gotten rid of him. But the king was intimidated, and the king was worried about leftist revolution and any kind of revolution. So he invited him to become prime minister. And, and after that, there were still a few years in which people thought he would pivot, um, despite when we look back, all the circumstances seem, no, he was never going to pivot. And then he eventually declared a dictatorship. Once, once the... <laughs> the that that moment occurs where you know he he has sort of cemented power i mean it, as as you just articulated it seems like this it happened in phases over periods of time um to an average italian citizen once he did take power um what were the kind of changes in the society the, the changes in civil liberties the changes in just general governing philosophies that um that happened once he actually was the dictator and and had that kind of power so the first thing he did um, before he, when he was just uh, still prime minister at the very beginning, he, he was a journalist. He was mm. trained as a journalist. He was a real showman. He was one of these charismatic strongmen, and he really was very entrancing. Uh, and he knew how to play a crowd. Mm. He knew he had brilliant slogans. He was funny. He was sarcastic. Um, so he knew that the press was very, very important to tame. So... Like within a few months of taking power, he knew that he had to do something with film. And so film at the time was like Twitter today. Hmm. And he was the first ruler along with some of the, the Soviets in Russia to realize the power of film propaganda. And a lot of it, Italians were illiterate. So that's another angle. Hmm. So he created this state-run um, propaganda and news agency, and he started with newsreels. Hmm. And in that way, he built up his power. So he did that. Then when he declares eventually dictatorship, he has a series of laws where, you know, he bans other parties. He takes over all the press, meaning it's very the press part is very important. It's the first thing that any strongman does. Um, you either, you know, replace dissident editors uh, with, you know, friendly ones, and you get rid of opposition press, and you establish kind of... Um, party cards, and, and the same thing with political parties, you ban them all, and you, and you start having secret police, uh, extra-legal things, it's, and it's the key thing to, to note is that it's a process, and often people don't know 
what's happening and they can't recognize what's going on until it's too late. In is the ultimate objective in a state like that where one man is is concentrating so much power unto himself the elimination of all uh, dissidents? Is it the elimination of all you know checks on his power? What, what is the uh, the the path that is eventually taken to kind of cementing power in in this one person? It's it's a it's a kind of a two pronged or a three pronged thing, and one is building up the cult of personality. Mm-hmm. And I've written on this, mm-hmm. uh, having posed in other places. It's you can't have um, a successful dictatorship without a cult of personality of the ruler um, in fascism. There, when you get to communism, where there's a huge state system, you can have kind of grayer, more boring leaders in advanced communism. Mm-hmm. But even Lenin and Stalin, you had cults of personality. So you have to build up the leader. And one of the things that's very important is the most successful, uh, like Mussolini, they established a direct bond with the people that goes over and above and through any established parties. So a lot of these people present themselves, as I said before, as disruptors, like an anti-party, or they call themselves a movement. Um, and Trump has done this extremely successfully, where he, he, he seeks out a direct bond, and he had a loyalty oath, a salute. So you start having what I call a political theater, and a lot of rituals that people love. And so they come to your rallies, and they bond with you, and you know all of these leaders love rallies because that's their personal charisma. So you have that, hmm. and and then you have, depending on your aim, if you are really uh, aiming at dictatorship, you have to establish a one-party rule. And but something that's not usually uh, talked about is it can't be just any party. And so what these people do is they use violent thugs, who can be called squadrists or brown shirts or militias. They use these people to get to power. And then often they get rid of a lot of them because they, you have a big test of how do you turn a revolution into a regime. So the people who are suitable to get you um, through violence and intimidate people and, and make them be quiet right, or emigrate, mm. they, they often don't want to calm down. And, and you see this even now with Trump. He, he's giving speeches in his rallies and he says – Oh, you know, you were violent and you were vicious, he said this last Friday. But now you're very calm because we don't need to be violent anymore. We won. And and it's not a perfect analogy. They're not squadrists. Hmm. But you see this with every single regime. Hmm. So you, you actually um, kind of remold the party the way you want it to be. Hmm. So sometimes people think these rulers get in and they just want to build the party to the biggest possible. That's not really right. What they want is to get rid of all the hotheads and have youth and people who are very uh, tameable. So you want to mold the party in your image. I know, you know, when I think when most Americans or most people think of what the result of fascism in, in Germany, they obviously think about the um, the murder of, of so many various types of people in that society, mo- most prominently the, the Jews. In fascist Italy, was there something comparable where there was a, you know, pseudo genocide or um, mass murders or anything on that scale that you know, maybe most people don't know about? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question because one of the reasons fascist Italy was not considered to be uh, 
on par, let's say, with Nazism, is we didn't have the kind of research that would allow us to make those comparisons. So a lot of the violence, including um, genocide, went on in the colonies. Mm. So, um, and, and Italian fascism is an interesting example of a dictatorship for 20 years that also was a colonial state, mm. which we don't really have another example of that. But as he, you know, so he went into Africa and, and he went to Libya and they were already there, but they, from the liberal era, except in Ethiopia, but they really um, souped up the violence and the extermination of intellectuals and dissidents. And, and then inevitably, you know, he turns on people who are Italian. So when he allies with Hitler, he has, you know, he starts with racial laws, which were directed to the colonies as well as to Italian Jews. And, and then he, he did things with Slavs, and he established a kind of um, registries of Jews and other people. And the reason many people get worried when rulers talk about registries and census, because if there is one day a, a plan for deportation, like there was in the Holocaust, you're able to use those names and addresses um, as, as a way to get to pick up everybody. Mm. And that's why people get nervous, or even if you think back to World War II, the internment camps. Mm. In order to put those people in the camps, uh, you had to have their names and addresses and know where to go for them, mm. because not everyone came voluntary, voluntarily. Mm. Uh, so, so there are those things. Um, and then Italy ended up, like all of the European powers um, that had a German occupation, collaborating in the Holocaust. Mm. And separate from the Jews, when they started to implement these these uh, the the racial laws and um, maybe specifically laws that do, did not specifically apply to Jews, uh, what what would happen? Was it primarily directed at racial minorities, and and if so, uh, were they thrown in jail? Were they beaten? What, what kind of uh, what resulted from these kind of laws? You, well, the ones, uh, some of them were, yeah, they were, you, you had a lot of Slavs who were interned inside Italy. Um, fascist Italy had 50, like 5-0 um, concentration camps inside its borders. Mm. And this is something that the research wasn't done until after the year 2000, and we didn't really know anything about this. Wow. Yeah, every, everything is, and, and colonialism was only started to be studied in a big way after the year 2000. Mm. So we just didn't have the information, um, as well as things like the secret police, um, everyday violence, exceptional violence. Um, we didn't know about these things. And so, in a way, the big summary of these issues still waits uh, to be written, mm. I would say. Let's move up to more towards modern times. Um, I'm wondering what the past year and a half has been like for you having been a, a scholar of fascism for so many years. Um, what was your initial impression, maybe from the first day Donald Trump, not far from where we're sitting, declared that he was going to run for president? Uh, did did you initially regard him as, as so many other people did, someone who was not a legitimate uh, contender for the presidency? What, initially, what were your thoughts about him and what he was trying to accomplish? So, you know, when you work on fascism, you really don't want your subject to be relevant. You would like it to be able to be placed in the past. Um, but the minute I saw him speaking at, at a rally, and not, not in person, but I knew we were in for big trouble because I could see that the 
things, the way he was approaching the crowd and the way that he was um, using uh, racism was going to be very successful. And so the first time he, I was very attentive to the way he communicated. So he started retweeting uh, racist and neo-Nazi and alt-right propaganda very early on. And the first time I saw one of those, which was directed at the time at Jeb Bush, but it was anti-Hispanic. Mm. And it had kind of an assemblage of you know racist images, like a monkey trying to enter the U.S. through a hole in the wall. Um, I stood, I was outside and I stopped, I looked at it, and then I literally ran home um, to do an op-ed because I knew this was very bad news indeed. <laughs> so, and at a certain point, you know, a good comparison was and still is someone like Silvio Berlusconi because he he came up uh, in a democracy and and I have never ever called Trump a fascist because he doesn't aim at a one party state he doesn't aim at a dictatorship mm-hmm. he doesn't need to do that and so Berlusconi is an interesting analogy because which is all the more relevant now I wrote an article for CNN maybe last March or mm-hmm. last May um, because of certain aspects with somebody who had a, a brand already who was able to kind of import it into politics mm-hmm. um, and the conflicts of interest and the way they treated the crowd and stuff like that. Mm. But so I, I recognized his kind of charisma. And then the other thing he started to do, which was very disturbing, um, he began very early on to test test his followers and test the GOP and the political class, which all authoritarians do, to see what their appetite and their tolerance was going to be for violence and for him being a strong ruler. So maybe you all remember uh, in January, almost a year ago, he stood up in a rally and he said, I could shoot someone, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and not lose any followers. And that was a milestone for me because that, that's a very serious thing to say. And he was testing the GOP to see what they were going to do. And, you know, we go all the way now for six months and he was rewarded. Not only was not stripped of, you know, his role as a contender for this violent talk, he was rewarded with the nomination and no one ever stood up to him. So these personalities, they're testing and and the classic fascists did it too and every time the political class fails they become emboldened and they go further if you still will not label trump a fascist uh, i know you you just used the word authoritarian mm-hmm. um is that the right word in your in your view to be assigning to who trump is and and if so what what is the you know, your definition or your working definition of, of why that applies to Trump rather than a fascist? Well, I, I reserve fascism for someone who it aims at, a, at having a political system which is associated with one party mm. state. And that's what a dictatorship is. Mm. Um, you must get rid of all other parties. Mm. Whereas it's more effective and true to my way of thinking to call him an authoritarian because it also gives us the lesson that these people can rule within a democracy mm. and they can use the 
they can make use of the legal structure and constitution and do all kinds of things within the boundaries of a democracy, stretching it beyond what we might have been used to, but they are still not a dictatorship. It's not a dictatorship. Hmm. Um, so we, we can sometimes say, oh, he's not a dictator, so we're going to be okay. And everyone talks about checks and balances. But the, one of the main worrisome things is that people have not been able to recognize what's in front of them. And one could say well, that's a strength of our democracy, that Americans had no clue how to recognize these creatures. Mm. They've never had one of these creatures come up. Mm. So this is where if you're a historian, you think, oh, dear, it's it's happening, but it doesn't have to be leading to dictatorship for one to be very worried about it. Mm. And and if if that is the right word, if he is an author, authoritarian, still operating in a multi-party or, or two-party state in the U.S., um, does that mean he's equally or as dangerous as if he were a dictator and and – um, what do you maybe answer that question first and then we can move on from there he, well if you look at the example of Berlusconi who had it's, they have more than two parties but mm. the left uh, which let's say very gross analogy let's say like the Democrats which was very large they were kind of they never figured out how to handle him mm. and they were very kind of powerless to know what to do against him so he he, he was able to shift the whole political climate rightward, um, bringing into power the first neo-fascist since Mussolini mm. died. So, you know, these people can do a lot of damage without, again, without being, um, going out of the boundaries of democracy. Mm. So, And neo-fascist, is that a, a phrase you would apply to Trump? Is that what we're dealing with? Um. No, I just think he, he's an authoritarian, and everything that he's done, uh, authoritarians, uh, they have certain personality quirks. Mm. They don't trust anyone outside of their family, um, so they often rely on their children, um, or this kind of, it's a, like a clan mentality. They don't like to take counsel from others, and this is a downfall. They end up not doing well. In fact, none of them have had a good result, mm. meaning even personally. They've mm. not had a good destiny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I urge everyone to Google pictures of how many of these people ended up in other places and times because they get in, they're in a bubble. And they're often very brittle people who construct this kind of world where no one contradicts themselves. Mm. And so they buy their own propaganda. Um, and these are not very good qualities in a leader. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and the experiment of doing this in democracy with a Congress is going to be very interesting. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, there, there have been some some articles that I've read since the election um, indicating that uh, some of these articles were published in The New York Times, that there are, are some people that believe that the American Republic, as we know it, is very likely over. Um, is that, you know, projecting and, and no one knows the future for sure, but given your your knowledge of of the your focus on history, in your mind, what is likely to uh, come about in the U.S. and the world over the next four years? And and do you think that it's possible that the republic as we know it is isn't truly in jeopardy? I can't say. Not also not being an American historian, I can't I can't say um, what the real strength. Uh, of our democratic institutions has been and mm. is. I think 
it's a very bad sign that the GOP has been unable to respond responsibly to the Russian hacking, mm. that they people who even verged on the Cold War, uh, which was not a good thing and had devastating uh, repercussions in our country, mm. but these were cold warriors, some of these people. And apart from John McCain, no one has... Some people are even declaring that it was great and terrific that the Russians hacked us because the truth came out. So, and of course, the whole problem of what people call fake news, which is propaganda. So what I do see, I can say, speak more maybe authoritatively about what I see going on. Um, there's a very clear... I've, I've been calling in, in Twitter, you know, Axis 2.0. There's been a very clear uh, re attempt to form these international uh, networks. Mm. And back in the 30s, when you had Axis 1.0, cultural and propaganda accords were the first way that these countries got together mm. before World War II started, and then you had the military stuff going on. And I've been uh, predicting this for a while, and the reason I believe that Steve Bannon is in the cabinet of Trump is, yes, he he was like the kind of, you know, he made the racists happy, but the real reason he's there is Breitbart. And you even, you start to see all these uh, right-wing movements, which as we know are picking up a lot of support uh, all over Europe. Mm -hmm. And Putin is the new Hitler. Everybody's going to Putin to speak with him. We just had, you know, the Austrian right party just made what they called a cooperation accord, which is straight out of the 1930s. Mm. So it's important to track these things. And Trump is aligning himself to be, uh, you know, to have America, or at least his America, be some kind of um, tool in this. Mm. Mm. Um, I'm wondering in, you know, your your travels, I know you just got, got back from an international trip. Um, how do you find other scholars from outside of the U.S., people in Canada who you who you just spoke with, um, what have their reactions been to this election? And are they fearful about the future? Are they are they scared of what is coming in the United States? Yeah, um, I can speak more. I spent a week each in Rome and in Paris this fall, um, right before and right after the election, and those are better. Uh, examples because they are countries that had histories of fascism or, you know, Vichy France and it's a very lively debate. There's a lot of sadness, which I share, um, at the what has happened to America, at the loss of leadership. And again, what I just mentioned about can't even have a proper response of sovereignty to having been hacked by Russia and Putin knowing who Putin is. So there's a lot of bewilderment and fear because America has been kind of, you, many people dislike America and think it's been imperialist, but there's been a kind of, um, it's a sadness that also goes back to the role America played after World War II mm. with the Marshall Plan. And all that seems to be a, of a bygone age now. So mm. there was a lot of that um, I was hearing. Mm. In your in your study of history, in in terms of the people that were tried to be active against um, authoritarian or or fascist leaders that bubbled up, um, are there any lessons that for individuals who are interested in 
pushing back against such a system or uh, dissenting against that sort of a government um, has been proven to work at least some of the time? What what are the, the tactics you would advise for, for people that are not interested in living in an authoritarian system to uh, to begin to do or to be, begin to think about um, in the prospect of the next four years? Good question. I'm, I'm, we're all thinking about this now. I think we can use the system we have. We, we have uh, channels to influence our elected leaders. We have elected leaders. And I, I wrote um, an article for CNN about uh, Trump's tweeting and how to influence him. And I, I said, as we have to think outside the box, we, yes, we have to continue to pressure our elected leaders um, who still will want to be reelected. Mm. And we'll listen to that. And a lot of times we, we don't do it. We, we're very complacent in America. We've been able to take a lot for granted. And you can say, oh, I'm going to do this. And then we get busy with our day. We don't do it. So I think we all have to, if so inclined, mm. really make that happen. But I also, I was a proponent of going to those Trump, the few Trump will listen to. So flood the generals. He has uh, chosen, so many of them, flood them with your complaints about his unpresidential behavior. Mm. For example, it's not in the, the, you know, a lot of his behaviors would not be tolerated in the armed forces Mm. for one moment. Mm. And they don't want the specter of an undisciplined, reactive, impulsive commander-in-chief because it makes us look weak. Mm. So there there are ways you can think outside the box just like Trump does. Mm. And then on on a personal level, it's very important not to feel resigned and hopeless because these these kinds of rulers, they barrage you with images of themselves. They're bullies, and Trump is uh, a, a terrible bully, and everyone has been bullied by him or had other reasons not to speak up, uh, those who could, the political class. And you've seen a lot of opportunism, but I think a lot of fear. And so it's very easy not to speak up. Um, and if you do speak up, you have trolls, you have threats. Um, I've had them. Any, anyone who's published against Trump has had them. So you, you must not be fearful and you must not be isolated or resigned. Hmm. So it's important to be together with people physically, um, to organize uh, in a group and not be isolated. Hmm. In your description of Trump and, and his almost seemingly masterful performance over the last year and a half um, in some of the the ways in which you've described him seem to indicate a, um, a, a strange form of deep intelligence on his part. Um, is that the way you see Trump? Do you, do you view him as someone who has been leading the orchestra all along and, and knew what he was doing or someone who just had a certain personality type and got lucky based on the current environment in the country and the world? A little of both. I mean, we know that he's thought about running for president for years. Mm. And the genius of Trump is he can read the market. I'm using that word on purpose. It's This time it's the political market. Mm. He saw it was the right time. Um, he obviously talked to enough people that it would be feasible for him to do it. And then he has a genius for kind of feeling out the mood of the crowd, and mm. that can be the crowd before him or a larger crowd, and telling them what they want to hear. So his racism and a lot of his 
very in suggestive slogans and themes, people, you know, walls and swamps. And he knew how to make people very unsettled. Mm. And the spinning of a crisis narrative is, is one of the classic signs of an authoritarian. Mm. They destabilize you. They make you feel worried. And then in they come and they say, I will fix it. I alone can fix it. And that's where the cult of personality comes in. Mm. So, and one thing he, uh, I read in one of his, I don't know if it was Art of the Deal, and he repeated in an interview, he said that he likes to go, he stays shallow. And what he means by that is he goes with his first impulse, and he doesn't overthink things. And and this is what is his maneuvering going to be in a deal? Hmm. What is the weakness of the person in front of him? He's very transactional. Hmm. So this is why you see him acting impulsively and refusing to apologize, because he's found that this works for him. Hmm. Now, all of these qualities are really bad ones in a leader, especially of a nation like America. So the challenge is, and again, will people be able to influence him? Hmm. Um, when he hires anyone around him, he makes sure to um, humiliate them so that they know he's the alpha male. So he did this with Pence. Uh, when he announced Pence's VP uh, you know, engagement, he uh, didn't look at him and he didn't even mention, he just talked about himself. He, he finds ways to kind of put everybody down around him so that doesn't promise well. Hmm. But um, th this is what we have as our ruler. Hmm. Um, I know the morning after the election, Obama gave a press conference in which he, he noted um, in what may have been the only optimistic note he could have taken, that Trump is not an ideologue, that he's not someone who has um, a firm political ideology. Um, and I want to ask you about that. I, I wonder if that, given his background, um, if you believe that that's true, if there are certain things from Trump, given what he has said and done, that are not 100% guarantees that he'll continue in the future, but are very likely to be who he is and what he will try to accomplish as president? I think, I think there are things. Uh, I think, again, it's a combination of, I think that a lot of his racism is, uh, it's a family culture. I've written an article about that, uh, including his son, Eric. Um, but then he realized he could use this uh, and he kind of, you know, so he has certain things that he probably believes. He really does believe that America is getting taken for a ride. So that's the make America great mm. again. But he is pragmatic enough to change his views. Now, mm. another person who did that uh, successfully until it didn't work anymore um, because of Hitler was Mussolini. Mm. He would never define fascism. He constantly contradicted himself. And he you know, would promise someone something to get some, their vote or their early on or their support, and then he would take it away. So there's something very destabilizing about someone like that you mm. have no ground to stand on and so that's what's also worrying mm. so he's a combination of a pragmatist but above all i think that he trump it wants what's best for trump and that i truly believe is the case mm. um, when certain uh, groups of religious jews for example were saying he's good for israel um, people weren't very happy with me. I said, no, Trump is not pro-Israel. Trump is pro-Trump. That is really his primary thing is himself and his family, which is also his business. Mm -hmm. Anything else is secondary. Mm. You know, I know a lot of people uh, have have thought who, who have researched Trump and, and 
uh, just view his his personality as just in, incredibly reckless, are of the opinion that it's fairly likely that he will um, commit some sort of impeachable offense uh, in potentially short order. Um, I'm wondering if if you've had conversations with with colleagues or scholars, or or you have any personal views on um, whether you think that is you know likely to happen, possible or likely, and if so, what sorts of things he could do that would result in that in that sort of end for him? I'm not sure anymore because the the GOP and indeed uh, a lot of the political class in general has kind of rolled over like a dog. I hate to sound so harsh. Every time he has um, kind of pushed the envelope. So it was, it was very obvious that he should not have had the nomination without showing his tax returns. And now we're only now with the Russia – it's 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 evident, you know, that this is why. Mm. And now we have the same thing with this Secretary of State, um, who we can still have leverage on. We can say we're not going to confirm Tillerson as Secretary of State until he releases his tax returns. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's something there. Mm. What I do worry about, though, so so I can't predict what the impeachable offense might be. Mm-hmm. There there are many things mm-hmm. it could be. I do worry, though, that. Men with this, men in power with this character, when their backs to the wall, they often uh, they will not surrender. They use that moment to up their authoritarian, um, you know, kind of destination. So we could see it's very unpredictable if he thinks he's going to be kicked out, what he might do. Um, and, and there are several times in the past, uh, again, I don't want to overemphasize the Mussolini analogy, but he, he was proceeding along within the democratic framework, and then he finally, uh, his hands were shown to be dirty, and he was accused of having ordered the assassination of a very popular socialist politician. And he had a crisis, and he almost lost power, and he was, you know, there was the parliament was going to kick him out and his ulcer uh, dates from this period. And then he came to parliament and resolved it by saying the following thing. He said, if fascism has been a criminal association, well, I am the head of that association. So he owned his violence finally, personally. He had not personally assassinated, but mm-hmm. he had ordered it. And that was the day he declared a dictatorship. So... When when you get these crisis moments, anything can happen in someone of that nature. Hmm. A couple more questions I want to ask you uh, before we end. And we're, we're sitting in Manhattan. I'm wondering, you know, you, you noted that after articles you, you had published that were critical of Trump, that you were the recipient of, of some negative feedback uh, that might be saying it too lightly. Um, are do you do you fear for your safety? I mean, do you, as someone who has spoken out against Trump, and I, I'm assuming you know other people who have done the same, um, even though you live in a, a multicultural city like New York City, um, is, is that something that crosses your mind? It does sometimes. You 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 get you you know what to do. I'm I'm a freelance. Uh, I've written something like 25 articles for CNN and The Atlantic, but mostly CNN. I'm a regular at CNN, mm-hmm. and so you reach all of America and indeed way beyond, which I I think is good. I, I also get um, some beautiful letters yeah, from yeah. people saying that you know the article gave them hope mm-hmm. or told them. How they, you know, 
might see things in a better light. Mm -hmm. But I, yes, you, you, it's unpleasant. You get used to it. Um, you, in Twitter, you block, you report, um, and you can take certain precautions. Um, so you can't be found easily. Um, mm -hmm. My name is not on any office registry. So you do those things. But I personally, um, a lesson of what I study is that you cannot, you cannot be intimidated into silence. Mm. Um, I, think, I think that it's important, especially for people who are freelancers in a way. Um, and, and, and this is the great, um, it's very nice to be a professor. Mm -hmm. I, keep, I keep politics out of the classroom, mm -hmm. but I, I have tenure and I am able to speak out. And then I also do journalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, once we get intimidated into silence, that's very serious for all of civil society. Agreed. Um, how about for for so many millions of Americans that that voted for Trump and are enthusiastic about Trump, um, and maybe don't have a the grasp of history that that you do that that you uh, in studying fascism can see parallels that we've been talking about today. Um, what would be separate from the Democratic Republican infighting that that's so common in America? What what would you say to uh, people like that as a uh, retort to the rise of Donald Trump for people that you know, believe his election to be a good thing? Is it that he's turning America into an unrecognizable, potentially unrecognizable state where the freedoms that we have traditionally held are no longer a guarantee? What is the nonpartisan um, mm -hmm. response you would give to people like that? That's, that's a good question. I've thought about that. And I think when you when you write for a place like CNN, you 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 need to think about it mm -hmm. because you're not writing for the nation, or and it's important. Um, I think that you know one of the things that came through in the election was the kind of um, quote discovery of among let's say for example certain liberals that there was this whole uh, part of the electorate that felt disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. And we may hear about them in our liberal enclaves more because they are, you know, NRA backers, but they had the kind of the economic anxiety, mm -hmm. you know, argument. Now, one thing I would say to them is it's, it's important not to compartmentalize. I think about this a lot because people, Racism and eventually persecutions and bad things happen in societies when people compartmentalize and they say, oh, well, Hitler just wants us to be great in the world again, and he happens to also be persecuting Jews, but I'm going to close my eyes to that mm -hmm. part of it. And instead, as hard as it is, it's important to see that often they go together and you you wait to see, in this case, who who is being picked for the cabinet? What are their profiles on these issues? But it's important to, to, to face with open eyes the fallout that can come from uh, certain positions that you may think are innocent. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. Last question I want to ask you, um, and I know you've written and been asked about Trump a whole lot, probably more than you ever thought would happen in the last year <laughs> and a half of your life. Um, uh, is there anything about him or this circumstance or anything from history that you have wanted to 
speak about and just have never been asked or just general observations about the the situation we find ourselves in right now that um, you you think is is important for you to uh, to state or to observe given your your background that's that's a good question um, my as an aside my daughter when when the election was coming and um, she was was a Hillary Clinton supporter and thought that Clinton would win and she said mom what are you going to write about after the election because I was <laughs> so focused on Trump but uh, alas there is always more to say um, I, I would I do take a step back sometimes and look at what is going on from a kind of a bird's eye view and you could see um, this whole Trump phenomenon as a desperate attempt to turn back the clock and it's happened in other periods in history where we have made so many progress in our nation even recently on you know rights think of all the the sexual mm -hmm. and gender rights and all the other things that have gone on uh, female emancipation and many many areas and of course having had two terms african-american president which a lot of this is about so there's a kind of attempt to wrench back the march of history to use a cliche because it clearly is going in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. And if you look back a few centuries, you see these moments where there's this kind of, you know, little explosions, um, but it cannot ultimately stop. Mm. And I would say to people feeling despairing that, and I'm going to write a piece about this, all of the racially motivated projects from apartheid to colonialisms in Africa and elsewhere, they haven't ended very well. Mm. Um, uh, and, and of course we can view fascisms as racially having a racial dimension. Mm -hmm. So it's not much of a consolation now because we, things could get worse before they get better. But I do see this and you can see in the type of people he's appointed for his cabinet as, um, a, a, a last ditch. Um, I've even in the case of Newt Gingrich and his gender politics when he's in the news as the dinosaurs. Uh, these these people who uh, are part of an earlier era, mm -hmm. even only in their thinking, and um, it ultimately may not go their way in the long run. Hmm. Ruth, thank you so much for the time. This was fascinating. I, I really appreciate you talking. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com.